Glad to be with you. Glad to celebrate the 4th of July. I think it's, uh, it might be my favorite holiday, although you do get gifts at Christmas, so maybe there's a little bit there. But I love the 4th of July. I love it, love it, love it, love everything about it. Hot dogs, whatever. I love it all. Yeah. So fireworks, that's the thing I was trying to think of. I love those too. <laughs> Hot dogs and fireworks and whatever else goes along with the 4th of July. But I tell you what I do love. I love just the chance to stop and reflect on and celebrate freedom. I mean, that's a big deal. It doesn't come uh, without a cost. And I love to be able to just pause and celebrate freedom. We live in a wonderful country. We're free. Can you dig it? Groovy, yeah. And hey, if you've been with us this summer, you know we're calling this the summer of love, right? We are showing love to our faith family. We're showing love to our friends and neighbors. We're showing love to our community. And it's been a great summer so far. I've heard some awesome stories about people really showing some love. And of course, it's a, it's a nod to the original summer of love that happened 50 years ago this summer. And and uh, you know, in San Francisco, 50 years ago, they actually they have a website devoted to this 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. That's kind of interesting. And and uh, one of the things that they reflect on as they're kind of exploring the Summer of Love 50 years later is they talk a lot about freedom. They credit this original Summer of Love with starting the free speech movement, this movement to, to bring freedom to college campuses. And they, they credit it with starting this sexual freedom movement, although I'll be honest, I think that probably would have happened on its own eventually anyway, you know what I mean? But, uh, but they also credit themselves with starting the civil rights movement. That seems like a bit of a stretch, but, uh, but there's a lot of talk about freedom. And, and hopefully, that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about freedom because it turns out that that freedom is a critical piece of the doctrine that we're going to talk about this morning. As we continue this series, Can You Dig It? Uh, We've been talking about a lot of different doctrines, and this morning we're going to talk about a very, very important doctrine, and at the heart of that is freedom. And so as we get started, I want to share with you a story. It's a true story, a story of uh, myself when I was a young person, a teenager, and uh, my own freedom was tested. So I was a teenager working one of my very first jobs, all right? And I worked at this uh, Chicago-style deep dish pizzeria. So now that's all you're going to be thinking about throughout this story. It was good pizza. But uh, I, my, I only had a couple of jobs at this place, but my job was kind of the front of the store. So I would greet customers as they came in and help with carry-out orders. I did that kind of thing. And right there at the front of the store, they had this big... Uh, counter, this big counter, and had the phone, had a cash register, and that was kind of my domain, right? Now, as I start to tell you this story, I'm reminded actually of another story, this one that's in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. It starts off this way. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God put Adam in that garden. He oriented him to the things that he had created for man's benefit, just in the same way that I was oriented to this job that I had. So back to 
to my story. Uh, I, this big counter, you know, they had the cash register and they had the phone. And that's where I did most of my work, you know, taking carry-out orders and, and greeting people and stuff like that. And the, 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 my first day on the job, the person was kind of training me and everything. And he points out this little doorbell-looking thing that's down on the side of the counter. And he says, hey, you see that? Don't touch it. Don't ever touch it. I'm his first day on the job. I was like, okay, you got it, buddy. You got it. No problem. Well, in the same way, God gave Adam some instructions as he began his job. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You see, hopefully you're beginning to see some parallels between these two stories. So back to me, some time passed. I had this job pretty well figured out. I mean, it wasn't hard work, you know, and, and uh, when things weren't busy, my mind wandered a little bit, and I always wondered about that little doorbell. I mean, what was that thing even for? It had a, had a piece of tape over it. I guess you couldn't accidentally touch it. I don't know. I didn't even know if it even worked, but uh, uh, no one ever told me what it was for, and uh, as my mind wandered towards the temptation to push that button and see what happened. The same kind of thing happened to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 starts off this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So that's how temptation works, isn't it? Uh, we, just a, a slight twisting of the truth. We can kind of talk ourselves into just about anything, right? You focus on all the benefits that might come, kind of ignore the cost. That's how it goes. Well, after I stared at this button every day over and over for so long, I had a realization. Now, I did not have a dialogue with the talking snake, but I did have a dialogue with myself. And I realized that the person who originally trained me for this job, he didn't even work there anymore. I mean, maybe, maybe what he said was just like a practical joke, something they play on all the new employees. Hey, don't touch that button, uh, you know. I don't know. I mean, how bad could it be to touch that button, really? I mean, it probably didn't even work. It was probably nothing. All the stuff in this restaurant's kind of run down. The button's probably just old and worthless. Well, one night, almost the end of my shift, it was a slow night, well past the dinner rush, and I was bored. Just me, that same old counter I'd seen a thousand times, just me and that button. (laughs) Nobody watching me. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, again, she's thinking only the benefits, not the cost. She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Well, just like Adam and Eve, I pushed that button and it felt satisfying. All that suspense was finally over, but nothing happened. Not a noise, not a light, nothing. 
Well, I thought, well, well maybe, maybe it like rings a bell in the back of the restaurant. And so I, I walked back there and I looked around. Nobody was looking for me. No, nothing. I guess, I guess it was no big deal after all. When I was back at the back of the restaurant, the manager saw me. He said, hey, yeah, it's not busy. Why don't you go ahead and clock out and go home early? Well, you don't have to tell this guy twice. I mean, I was clocked out and in my car and down the road in a shot, right? Next evening, I get back to work, and everybody's buzzing about something. Something had happened. And the manager finally came to me and said, Oh, man, you left early. You missed all the excitement. Apparently, the police had shown up. They'd surrounded the restaurant, scared some people, caused all kinds of confusion. And I thought, well, that's weird. What would happen to make the police show up? And the manager was talking and asking around. And finally, he says to me, Hey, did you push the silent alarm? Back to Genesis. Then after they ate the fruit, (laughs) the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So I looked at that manager trying to decide what I was going to say. How could I get out of this? There was a really long pause. And then he said, well, it couldn't have been you because you were already clocked out by the time the police came. So I decided to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) But I knew. I never had to wonder anymore. I knew what that button was for. That was the silent alarm that alerted the police that a robbery was in progress. So I've juxtaposed these two true stories in order to make a point, in order to introduce this critical doctrine. It seems the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? You probably have your own stories of when you've given in to forbidden fruit, to sin, and uh, often so much more harmful than the story that I relayed to you. But this, this moment in Genesis recounts the original sin, the, uh, when Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect state without any sin in the world, and they gave in to temptation, forever changing the world. And this original sin had a profound effect on Adam and Eve. It continues to have a profound effect on you and me and the whole world. And there's a lot of different things that we could say about this story in Genesis. So many rich details. But what I want us to focus on is actually another moment in the Bible when the Apostle Paul uh, interprets this story. If you go to the book of Romans, Paul talks about this moment in Genesis, and he provides the interpretation that I want us to use as we build our doctrine this morning. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up to Romans chapter 5. That's in the New Testament, and and just as we can look at this story from Adam and Eve and draw parallels to our own lives, well, Paul can look at this story and draw some significant truth that we're going to discuss today. And so, so let's take a look at what Paul says about this moment. We're going to look at Romans chapter five, verse twelve. Paul says, "Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin." 
And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So, so this is the, the summary of Genesis 3, Paul's summary of that, of this original sin. And, and this is the beginning of a dense but very, very important passage of Scripture. Paul's been talking about how everybody is a sinner, and yet Christ has the power to change lives. And here, in, in this verse 12, he, he starts to answer the question, well, how is it that we got here? How are we all sinners? And in order to answer that question, Paul goes all the way back to this moment, this original sin. And when you and I read in Genesis, uh, like we did a minute ago, it seems like maybe Eve should get a lot of the blame. I mean, she seems to be driving the train, you know what I mean? But, but if we looked carefully at that passage, we'd see that, in fact, uh, that's not the case, that Adam is, is really, he gets the blame and he deserves it. Uh, if we look carefully, you'd see the serpent, he's actually talking to both of them. When he says you, that's not singular, just to Eve, it's, it's plural. So, so Adam and Eve are both a part of that conversation. And, and Adam, he's the one who originally got the instructions from God. So it was his job to instruct Eve. You know, she wasn't even created at that time. So he had to instruct her and protect her from sin, and he doesn't do that. And so even though Eve eats first, Adam really gets the blame, and he deserves it. He's the original passive man who frustrated his wife with inaction, right? Uh, all the women are like, mm-hmm. All the men are like, hmm, maybe I should say, you know, yeah. So Adam gets the blame, right? And, he, and Paul tells us that. And, and you and I, as descendants of Adam, we have inherited something from him. We've inherited his corrupted nature. Uh, he was created in this perfect state without any sin, but he chose to give in to temptation. And after that, he had a changed nature. He was no longer free from sin. And uh, all the, so everything changed. And as Adam and Eve began to have children, then their children that's us. We all inherited that corrupted nature. That's one thing that we've inherited from these spiritual parents. But we've also inherited something else. We've inherited some guilt. Adam had freedom, and God laid out the rules for him. Genesis 2, he says, The Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So, so Adam knew what was right and wrong, but because God loved him, God gave him a choice. God gave him freedom, and he chose to sin. And so now, uh, as Paul says in Romans, sin entered the world through one man. So now each of his children, each of us, share in that guilt. So we've inherited these two things, this corrupted nature and this guilt. And so, so not only is the whole world changed, there was no death before, and there's death now. Paul tells us that. There's disease when there was no disease before. Dogs hate cats now when they used to get along before. Everything's changed. But, but also there's been changes to our fundamental nature, our fundamental human nature. Once we were free, total freedom. I mean, groovy, right? But Adam used that freedom to sin. And as a result, we're changed. We're not free anymore. In fact, we're slaves to sin, Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans. That's how we find ourselves. This, this lack of freedom, that's what's such a significant doctrine. It's a heavy doctrine. It even has a heavy-sounding name, total depravity. Total depravity. 
And now, now total depravity, that doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. I mean, sometimes it seems like that, but, but that's not what total depravity means. I mean, each of us could point to a moment when we resisted temptation. You know, you had six Oreos, but you said no to the seventh, right? I mean, we all, uh, so saying that, that we're totally depraved doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be, but what it means is that all of us, our whole nature, has been tainted by sin. In fact, uh, Paul tells us this, sin has affected our minds. In Romans 1, he says our thinking is futile as a result of sin. He says our hearts are darkened. He describes our minds as depraved. That's one of the reasons we call it total depravity. Uh, it's affected our minds. It's also affected our conscience. Uh, the author of Hebrews says our consciences need to be cleansed. It's affected our hearts. Jeremiah the prophet says our hearts are deceitful above all things. They're beyond cure. And so sins affected our whole nature. In one of Paul's other letters, he says our nature is deserving of God's wrath. So, so the effects of our depravity, they're extensive. They're total. And so theologians who think about these things, they call our sinful nature total depravity. But there's one ancient church leader named Augustine. He's got a really helpful way to think about it. He talks about our sinful nature in terms of freedom. Seems really helpful on this holiday weekend as we're trying to understand this doctrine. And so so Augustine, he was a church leader that lived way back in the 4th century. And uh, he found himself caught up in a controversy, right, a theological controversy. And uh, it uh, was a pretty big deal. It kind of threatened to fracture the church and tear things apart. So it was really important that they get this right. It wasn't just an academic exercise, this doctrine, but it was something kind of life and death. The whole future of the church rested on this. And so, uh, so Augustine wrote a book about it, all about free will, and he called it Freedom of the Will. Very creative title, right? But Augustine, he breaks it down in a way that I think is really easy for us to understand. And he talks about Freedom. He talks about how humanity has four different states of freedom, four ways that we can live in regards to freedom. And, and uh, the first state is the state that Adam and Eve were in when they were created. Before they ever sinned, they were in this first state. They were free. God made them free. They had freedom to sin, but they also had freedom not to sin. They were able to sin and able not to sin. And, and so they had total freedom. And now thanks to them, we have total depravity. So thanks, Grandpa. Thanks, Grandma. That's the way it goes. So uh, think about it this way, all right? Just as the people who gathered for that original summer love movement 50 years ago, they set in motion certain movements, the sexual freedom movement, for example. Well, our whole culture today is different because of the things they set in motion, right? We've inherited some of the things that they represent. Or here's another way to think about it. So many of those people who gathered for that summer love, they're now retired collecting Social Security. Well, one man, President Roosevelt, put Social Security in place. And now we all have the implications of it. Either we receive it or we pay for it. That's, that's how it goes. Well, that's the same way that sin works. Adam made a decision, and we all pay for it. Uh, we face the consequences, which includes our own loss of freedom. We're not the same as Adam and Eve. We've inherited the consequences of their decision. And so Adam and Eve had freedom, able to sin, able not to sin, but we don't have that same freedom. 
the second state in, in Augustine's explanation, this second state of humanity, that's where we find ourselves right here in Romans 5.12. After Adam and Eve sinned, we all inherited this corrupted nature, and so we're no longer free. Now, Augustine says we're not able not to sin. We're not able not to sin. Adam and Eve, they were able not to sin. We're now not able not to sin. We're slaves to sin. So no matter what, on our own, we'll default to choosing sin every single time. We no longer have that freedom not to sin. We're not able not to sin. Now, stay with me here because we've got two more states to go. But, so we don't get confused. Here's a kind of a helpful way to think about it, okay? Imagine a, a scale, like a set of scales you'd use to weigh something, right? And on one side of the scale is good, and the other side of the scale is sin. It's evil, Okay? And in this first state, the scales are balanced. Adam and Eve had total freedom. They could choose to sin. They could choose not to sin. Total freedom. But now, in this second state where we find ourselves, imagine the scales have been tipped. The evil side is weighed down. And so, so humans still have some free will, but we kind of are, are defaulted towards sin. The scales are really tipped towards sin. So think back to me working at that pizzeria, looking at that button, I mean, it was just a matter of time before I pushed that button. The, the scales were tipped that way. I'm, I'm surprised it took me as long as it did, to be honest. So that was me, not able not to sin. So this second state seems pretty hopeless. I mean, not able not to sin. We can't resist temptation. We need to somehow tip the scales back in our favor. But because we're totally depraved, we're not able to do that. We're not able to do anything that can please God. I mean, God, he gets to decide what good is, and we can't do anything that will please God. We can't come to God on our own because this corrupted nature in us. But God, but God, in his great love and grace for us, he made a way for us to escape our depraved state. In fact, back in Genesis 3, he even hinted at the solution that he had in mind. Remember, Adam and Eve in their perfect state, before they sinned, they were naked and unashamed, just beautiful the way God made them. But once they sinned, they realized they were naked. All their shame and guilt laid out for everybody to see. But God did something for them way back then when they couldn't do anything for themselves. Genesis 3 tells us the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. See, God knew they would need protection in this hostile world they're now entering, and God gave them animal skin garments. God covered over their sin because they couldn't. They had lost that freedom, and so, so blood had to be shed, the blood of this animal, in order to cover over their sin and their guilt. Death, the death of this animal that God used to clothe them, entered the world because of their sin. They couldn't do anything, but God did. God gives grace following sin. He takes action because we can't. We've lost our freedom, but God restores it. Well, in the same way, you know what? I was never punished for what happened in that pizzeria. I mean, it cost the restaurant something. didn't cost me anything. And just as God had a solution to Adam and Eve's sin problem, in Romans 5, Paul goes on to talk about the solution to our sin problem. We looked at Romans 5.12, but look with me at some of the rest of the passage. Verse 16. 
for Adam's sin led to condemnation, that loss of freedom. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, what we call justification, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who will receive it will live in triumph over sin and death, that freedom is restored. Through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. That's good news, right? God took care of our sin problem. When the the scales were tipped against us, we couldn't do anything to please God on our own, to earn our way back to a state of freedom. God took action. The one man, Adam, represented us all in our loss of freedom, in our depravity. In the same manner, the other man, Jesus Christ, represented all of us in paying for that sin. So through Adam, we inherit depravity, but through Christ, we inherit righteousness. Can you dig it? Yeah. So as a result of what God has done, we now find ourselves in this third state that Augustine described. Remember, the very first state, Adam and Eve, able to sin, able not to sin. But then when sin entered the world, everything changed. We inherited the sin nature, depravity, and we became not able not to sin. But now, thanks to Christ, as we read here in Romans, we've been made right with God, that, that free gift of grace, Jesus' willingness to die for our sins, just like those animals died to cover over Adam and Eve's sin, Jesus himself died so that our sins and our guilt could be covered over. We're made right with God through the sacrifice of Christ. So we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer not able not to sin. Now we're in this third state. We're able not to sin. The the scales have been tipped back in our favor. Some freedom has been restored. Now, our hearts are still bent towards sin. Our hearts are still uh, working that direction. We still have the effects of that. But because of God's work in our lives, we're able to resist, able to overcome temptation. And and in fact, in a couple of weeks when I preach again, we're going to talk about exactly that, how to resist temptation and avoid sin. But that's the state we find ourselves in now, able to not to sin, not because of anything we've done, but only because of God's grace. What a great gift. I mean, God has given us back freedom. That's something worth celebrating, and and it brings to mind the question, how do we respond to that? What do we do with this newfound freedom? And I want to share three different ways that I think we should respond. The very first way is we just need to recognize our need for grace. Grace is that free gift of God, and, and you didn't do anything to earn it. You, you, all that we bring to the table is sin, total depravity. That's what we got to work with. But uh, we can't do anything to earn our way to be right with God. Just as Adam represented us in our rebellion and sin, we have to identify ourselves with a new head, with Christ. We have to let Christ represent us before God, and he's got righteousness where Adam only has sin and rebellion. And so in order for us to get right with God, we've got to identify ourselves 
with Jesus. And that's really what the Bible talks about when we talk about repentance. It's this turning away from sin, this, this change in an identity, turning away from sin and the depravity we inherited towards a new identity in Christ, aligning ourselves to God through Christ, letting Him represent us. It's not a doing, it's not an earning, it's simply allowing Christ to be our representative. We have to identify ourselves with Christ and then we're made right with God because of what Christ has done. Now, tied into this is another very important idea, okay? If we can't earn our way to freedom, we can't earn our way back to God, we, all we do is put our faith in God, that's good news, but just as we didn't do anything to earn, you can't unearn your salvation, right? If you didn't do anything to earn it, you can't unearn it. That is good news. Good news for people who take this newfound freedom to dangerous places. Now, our freedom shouldn't give us license to just do whatever we want, but it's helpful to know that no matter what, God loves us. You can't unearn your way out of this new identity with Christ. So our first response, just recognizing our need for grace. The second response has to do with our freedom. God saw fit to restore freedom to us, freedom not to sin. So let's use it. Let's exercise our freedom. You're no longer a slave to sin. Let's live in a way that shows the whole world what a rich and full life in God can look like. Let's find ways to live that honor God, not uh, succumbing to temptation and not succumbing to sin. Just because you see a button doesn't mean you have to touch it, right? We're no longer slaves to sin. So let's be grateful for our freedom and let's exercise our freedom to live in a way that honors God and shows the world. Uh, Love people without expecting anything in return. Give generously, knowing that, that that's how God is honored. Put others first. Worship God in freedom. That's the way to live in a way that exercises the freedom that we have. Freedom not to sin. Leads us to one final response, one more way that we can respond to this gift that Jesus has given us, giving us back our freedom. Since we're free to not sin, free to resist temptation, we need to make a little shift in our thinking. We need to think carefully about boundaries. Uh, boundaries are these things that we put in place that, that help us avoid sin. You know, if you uh, struggle with uh, going to places on the internet that you shouldn't go, then you set up boundaries for how and when to use your computer, right? I mean, if I had a dollar for every Facebook post that said, I'm leaving Facebook for a while, I'd be rich, and you probably would too. But boundaries are helpful, and yet I think... Uh, we often think of boundaries as a bad thing, like we're depriving ourselves of something. But in light of the freedom that we have, our response should be a little bit different. We should celebrate boundaries as a gift from God. Uh, one of the ways this original Summer of Love movement went off the rails is thinking that freedom meant you should do whatever you want all the time, no matter what, no consequences. Well, Thinking about freedom that way without thinking about boundaries is really not that helpful. Boundaries are a gift, and they help us appreciate the freedom we have all that much more. 
Just as God gave boundaries to Adam and Eve way back in the garden when they were sent out of the garden, uh, he does the same kind of thing for us. God gives us freedom, but he also gives us boundaries. God tells us in his word how we should act as people who are identified with Christ, people who are under that headship of Jesus, aligning ourselves to God through Christ. And it's not a... a, a uh, anything bad, God gives us the Holy Spirit and His Word to tell us how to live in that way. And and just as any parent gives healthy boundaries to their kids, God treats us and loves us in the same way. So we should celebrate the fact that God loves us enough to give us boundaries, celebrating boundaries as a gift. Now, as we wrap up, I want to mention that fourth state of freedom. I told you there were four states that Augustine identified. The very first, Adam and Eve. They were able to sin, able not to sin. Total freedom. In our depraved state, we were not able not to sin. Slaves to sin. We couldn't do anything to please God, to come to Him on our own. But Christ's gift of grace moved us into that third state. Able not to sin. That, that freedom is restored. Well, I told you there's four states. And the fourth state is simply this. Someday, we'll be not able to sin. That's the fourth state, not able to sin. Someday, either when Jesus returns or when we die, we'll be taken out of this world and we'll be in God's presence, away from the presence and the power of sin, surrounded by God and His holiness where there is no sin and there is no temptation. What a glorious day that will be. And for those of us who are Jesus followers, we look forward to that day. And on days when our depraved nature shows itself and we realize how how depraved we still can be, then we long for that day, that day when we're not able to sin. We'll be with God, no sin, no temptation. In the meantime, let's continue to worship, continue to respond to God recognizing our need for grace, uh, embracing the new identity we have in Jesus, knowing that that freedom can't be taken away. We can't unearn it. That Christ himself has given it to us at great cost. And let's live within the God-given boundaries that we have, recognizing that those two are a gift from God that makes our freedom that much more groovy. Let me pray. God, we praise you. We worship you for the freedom that you give us. And uh, we want to live in a way that honors you. We recognize that uh, we're recipients of your grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. That all we have is our depraved nature. And we prove it to ourselves over and over again every time we sin. And yet, uh, because of what you've done, we can come to you. We can be... Uh, accepted by you, and we can even please you because you give us a way to live that is uh, within healthy boundaries. And I recognize too, God, that there are people out here who who don't experience that freedom. They have never uh, taken that moment to identify themselves with Jesus. And if that's you, if you can hear me and that's you, then, then you can make that decision right now, right where you're sitting. You can turn away from sin turn towards Jesus, say to God that that's the way you want to be identified. You want to be identified with Jesus, no longer with sin and rebellion. And if that's a decision you make, then you'll have that freedom restored. What a beautiful thing, a beautiful gift to give to yourself. 
this holiday weekend of uh, newfound freedom. And we pray for uh, people who are making that decision that you would surround them with people who love them, people who will nurture their faith and encourage each and every one of us to not only use the freedom we have, but to share the great gift of God with other people. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.